Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 179 of Game Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker, and on this show, we discuss the craft and the art of game mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 25 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my mistakes. I've got a great show for you today. I'm going to continue my series on the Dungeon Master's Guide. In this episode, we'll begin discussing Chapter 2, Creating a Multiverse. Just got a few quick announcements here at the top of the show. want to remind you that you can now get yourself a Game Master's Journey t-shirt or other swag. Uh, courtesy of Starwalker Studios, and you can find a link to our store over in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com slash journey, and uh, that'll take you to our store over on Spreadshirt where you can uh, get you some swag. <laughs> I can never say that right. Also, I have uh, somewhat recently published my own D&D adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth. You can find that for sale at starwalkerstudios.com as well. And I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to our brand new patron, John. Thank you so much, John, for becoming a patron. And thank you to all the patrons of Starwalker Studios. We could not do this without you. I also want to remind you that in addition to our community over on Google Plus, we also now have a Discord server where you can get together with other listener GMs and, and discuss whatever RPG topics you want to discuss. And you can find a link to our Discord server as well in the show notes at StarWalkerStudios.com. So go check it out. We've been uh, having a lot of discussions in there, have quite a few people uh, hopping in the Discord server every day and, and chatting it up. And that is awesome. So I thought at the top of the show today, before we get into the DMG again, that I would do something that I haven't done for a little while on the show, and that's talk a little bit about what's been going on uh, with my games lately. Uh, I periodically get requests from listeners to talk more about my own campaigns and my own game sessions and things like that. So I thought uh, this would be a good time to kind of give you an update. Because uh, just earlier uh, this last week, I wrapped up the Hidden Shrine of Tomawakan, which is one of the adventures in the Tales from the Yawning Portal book of adventures from Wizards of the Coast for D&D. And uh, we, we finished it and we, we got through it. it took us uh, 10 sessions. And those are all available for you to watch if you'd like on my YouTube channel. You can find the link to that in the show notes as well. And yeah, we, we had a lot of fun with it and, um, I was really happy to, to finish it. Um, partly because it, it just always feels good to, to finish an adventure and partly because I'm really, really looking forward to starting my next campaign, which is also going to be a D and D campaign. Uh, and that is going to be the hinterlands of Alondria. And it's going to be, a campaign that at least in the beginning of the campaign is going to be drawing on some elements from the West Marches style of campaigns, which we've discussed quite a bit here on the show in recent episodes. 
and is going to be my first full-blown campaign in my homebrew world of Primordia. And I, I've run some some shorter uh, adventures or campaigns in Primordia, but this is a, a, going to be a long-running campaign. My intent is to play all the way to 20th level and beyond. So we'll be starting with first-level characters and uh, hoping to get that started uh, within a week or two, I hope. Um, I'm kind of finishing up some some last-minute preparations on, um, on my side of the screen that I want to have done before the players make uh, characters. Namely, I've been working up a, a player's guide for them. And uh, it's... It's one of those things I, I don't know that the player's guide will ever be, quote, finished because I'll, I'll always probably be updating it and adding new things to it. But it's almost to the point where I'm ready to give uh, the current version to the players so that they can start thinking about the characters that they want to make. So I've just about got all of the stuff, all the information in there that they'll need to make characters. And really, the the biggest thing I've got left to do on it is finish a, a write-up on all my gods. So I've, I've figured out who my gods are. I finally came up with names for the, for most of them. There's still one that I'm working on a name for. And uh, came up with like kind of the mechanical stuff, like which deities get which don domains and what are their portfolios and stuff like that. But I wanted to do a short write-up of each god for the players so that they can kind of have a grasp of of who these different gods are and, and what they're like. So that's what I've been working on this week. And at this point, I've gotten six of the 18 gods written up. So I'm a third of the way there. And uh, I, I get a few done every day, pretty much. Um, although today I might not get any done because I'm I'm doing this podcast today. But uh, we'll we'll definitely have to see. And uh, oh, real quickly to to people watching the live stream on YouTube, uh, I apologize about the music being too loud on YouTube. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, I, I really don't know why that is. Uh, I'm, I'm using a mixer and everything I'm hearing on my end is well balanced. And the recording of the audio that I'm doing that will will be edited into the final podcast uh, is is well balanced, but for some reason the live stream on YouTube, the balance of the audio is all out of whack. Somehow uh, YouTube is is I don't know maybe separating the different tracks and and making one louder than the other. I don't know. Um, so that's something I have to figure out. So if anyone has any insight on what could be happening there, uh, let me know. I'm I'm using a mixer with analog connections into the computer, so. I don't know what's going going on there. So I apologize to people uh, watching live. Uh, hopefully that's something I can figure out how to fix in, in the near future. But uh, welcome. Welcome to the episode chat. And uh, thanks for thanks for chiming in. All right. So so where was I? Oh, talking about my next campaign and my player's guide. And yeah, I've got a third of the gods written up. So once I finish that, I think uh, I can give it to the players and they can start making their their characters or at least thinking about their characters. So I am planning to live stream this campaign that I'm going to start soon. And right now, my intention is to get together with all the players for a session zero 
And during that uh, session, which won't be a full, hopefully, three-hour session, uh, but during that session, I'm going to um, kind of introduce the campaign and the setting to the players and introduce the parameters for character creation, which all of this should be reviewed to the players at this point because I'll have given them the player's guide before that. And then as a group, we're going to talk about character creation and um, character concepts and, and what concepts uh, the players want to play and making sure that those fit together into a group that makes sense. So part of the setup for this campaign is that the player characters are being brought together by a person in the Guild of Adventurers in a very kind of Ocean's Eleven or leverage kind of way where this person from the guild is putting together a new adventuring team to go on a mission. And so each of these characters will be chosen uh, for their skills and will be chosen to complement the skills of the other people in the group so that they form a viable adventuring team that can go out into the wilds and survive <laughs> and return uh, with information and and all that good stuff. So because of that, it's important that the character concepts that the players have uh, fit together in such a way that the important bases are covered and that it makes sense that someone would have brought these particular people together to form an adventuring team. So because of that, I, I thought it was important to have all the players together uh, for at least the beginning part of character creation. And this is an interesting difference I've noticed in running games online versus in person is, you know, it. a lot of times when I've run games in person, um, we, we'll get together for the first session or, or a session zero when, when everybody makes their characters. A lot of times, you know, we're all together when people make their characters. And it, it seems like in my experience with my in-person games, People may come to that with with a vague concept of a character, but they haven't made the character yet and everybody makes the character together. That's a lot harder to accomplish online, I've found, because I've for whatever reason, I found um, with online groups, as soon as you uh, give the players uh, the parameters or enough information to start making characters, they'll they'll just go and make characters. And, and even if you have a session zero, they'll show up to session zero with fully made characters and backstories and all that stuff. And which point at which point it's kind of too late to do a session zero um, because the characters are already made. You might as well just start playing because uh, there, there's not much you can do when, once characters are made. So um, in an attempt to mitigate that for this campaign, I've given the players very little information about the campaign um, before session zero so that hopefully uh, they can come to the table with with open minds and not married to one particular character idea so that we can make these characters that will fit together in a group that makes sense. Um, so so the plan is to have the session zero, have the players be able to to discuss general concepts. And then once everybody kind of has the general concept of what their character is going to be and, and we have concepts that fit together well in a group then the players can start making their actual characters. If there's time during session zero, I'd like to take each player aside individually 
and talk a little bit more about their particular character and their backstory and how they fit into the setting. Because I'm running in a homebrew setting, um, so it's not like the Forgotten Realms or some other setting where players can go read up on the setting before the game. And it's also a relatively new setting that I haven't run a lot of games in before. So the players are coming to the table with very little to no knowledge of the setting. So I feel it's very important to give them the information they need to know about the setting so that they can make characters that are going to fit into the setting and make sense and fit the flavor of of the setting and, and all that stuff. So hopefully there'll be time to do that in session zero. And then what I would like to do after that is do a short prelude with every player and their character before the actual first session of the adventure. And this is an idea taken directly from the White Wolf games, Vampire, Changeling, etc., where doing a prelude was very much a part of of how you did those games. And the prelude is just a short one-on-one session. It's not a a full-length session, and at least in uh, the White Wolf games, they recommended that, that you not really do any dice rolling or have combat or anything like that. It's really just a chance to get together with the player one-on-one and discuss their character, um, flesh out their backstory a little bit, flesh out a little bit how they uh, get into the adventure, how they uh, meet up with the other characters, and just kind of get a nice solid foundation uh, for for that character. And this isn't something I've done uh, in D&D, at least not in the 5th edition days, but I wanted to do it partly because I am running in my own setting and, and this will be a chance for me one-on-one with the player again to make sure that their character fits the setting and they're not doing anything with their backstory that, that isn't going to work in the setting or, or whatever. And also it gives me a chance to kind of get to know um, the player and the character one-on-one um, kind of what what they're wanting to accomplish with this character, what their ideas about this character are and things like that. Because with online games, it's really challenging when you have a whole group of four or more players um, to, to kind of get that kind of information. Um, it, it's just a lot more difficult than it is with an in-person game. So um, well, we'll see how this strategy works, but, but I'm hoping that between this, this session zero and then doing a prelude, with each of the players and their characters that um, will get a nice firm foundation. Everybody will have a solid grasp of not only their own character and their backstory, but also how they fit into the world and how they fit into the group. And I, as the dungeon master will have a firm grasp of each of the characters and where they're coming from, what their life like has been like up to this point and and some ideas of where the player hopes this this character is going to go. So um, I don't know if I will live stream all of the pre-session one stuff as far as the preludes and the session zero, but I am going to record them and edit them and ultimately have them up on YouTube. And the plan right now is to have all that up on YouTube before we do session one so that for those of you that want to watch the campaign, you'll get to see the session zero and the character creation and the preludes with all the individual characters uh, first, if you want to, before the actual adventure starts. But I 
probably won't live stream all of that preliminary stuff, but it will be available on the YouTube channel um, to check out. So I'm really excited about the campaign and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, you know, it's just a, a question of how long it's going to take me to finish the player's guide and then how long it's going to take to do the session zero and to do a prelude with all the players, how long it will take to to organize that. I'm really hoping that we can do session zero one week, do the preludes by the next week and then start session one that that next week. But that that may not be possible. I'm, I'm dealing with with players and in, in, in different time zones and even different countries for some of them. So um, we'll, we'll just do the, the best we can. But uh, I think um, even worst case scenario, we should be up and running uh, in October, if if not before. So really, really looking forward to that. And, and I hope you'll you'll check that out on YouTube. So as I said, I just finished Hidden Shrine. We did our, our last session. It took us uh, 10 sessions to get through it. And as far as lessons learned or, or anything like that, um, there's there's really only one thing. And, and it's something that, that kind of happened at the very end of the campaign. Uh, kind of a, I wouldn't say it's a new lesson I learned, but but kind of a reinforcement of, of a lesson I've learned. And a reminder uh, that it's a good idea once in a while to check in with your players and see, you know, what they're thinking and, and how they feel about what's happening. So, um, you know, Hidden Shrine is a dungeon crawl. That That's all it is. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. Um, there's no real story to speak of in, in the adventure, which is not to say you couldn't add your own story to it, of course, but there isn't really one there. Um, there's not even many opportunities for interaction with NPCs as the adventure is written because almost all of the NPCs that the players uh, encounter speak an ancient language that is no longer spoken and is not one of the lang languages in the player's handbook. So unless you as a DM uh, do something to, you know, tell players, hey, you might want to learn this language, none of the players are going to know this language. So the only way the player characters can ever understand what an NPC is saying is if they're using uh, magic like tongues or comprehend languages and, and things like that. So there's even less chance for NPC interaction than you would normally have in, in a dungeon crawl. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I could, I could probably do a long discussion on, on what I think of, of the adventure, uh, kind of the pros and cons I, I see with it, but, um, long story short, I, myself as, as a DM, a little over halfway through it was, was getting pretty bored with it. And, you know, it's it's bad enough when when you as the game master are bored with the the adventure you're running. But what I was really concerned about was that I thought maybe the players were getting bored with it, too. And kind of my thought was that, well, if I'm bored with it, then surely the players are bored with it. Right. And so I just kind of thought that they were. And and I think it's actually in the episode. But when I had Brett on the show, who's who's one of my players in, in the campaign, I asked him about it and he said he wasn't bored with it. He was having fun with it. So when we ended uh, our final session, 
I asked the players, you know, what did you think of it, of the adventure? Did you like it? And and specifically, were you were you bored with it by the end? And I was very surprised to hear that none of the players were bored with it. So that was completely um, me. I was bored with it, but but the players were not. So, you know, kind of my takeaway from this is, like I said, you know, it's a good idea when you're running a campaign, especially kind of a longer running campaign, more than, you know, one or two or three sessions. It's a really good idea every once in a while to just check in with your players and and see what they think. Are, are they having fun? Um, is there anything they'd like to see more of? Is there anything they'd like to see less of? Are there any um, loose th- plot threads that they're really interested in? Things like that, just to get their kind of opinion and and get a uh, uh, get a read on just how they're feeling about the adventure and the campaign, because it, it may not always be what you think, and and their perception will not always be your perception. So in this example, I was getting super bored with Hidden Shrine. And even to the point where I started wondering if we should even finish it or if we should do something else or if I should um, interject something into the adventure to kind of take it off the rails and make it more interesting. Uh, but when I talked to the players about it, turns out they they weren't bored with it and they were enjoying it and having fun with it. You know, one of the players said that, that you know, it was um, their first real dungeon crawl and it was kind of cool to see what a dungeon crawl is like. So, you know, having heard all that, I'm really glad that I didn't do any of those things, especially for the player that's like, this was my first dungeon crawl, because it would have been a shame if I would have ruined that by halfway through it, you know, throwing everything up in the air and, and making it no longer just just a dungeon crawl. So, yeah, you know, we, we can't read people's minds. And, you know, sometimes as a GM, we're, we're very much kind of locked in our own heads. We're very wrapped up in, in what we're doing because it's such an all-consuming uh, task to run a game that sometimes we can assume that that our outlook is going to be shared by the players, and that's that's not always true. So, you know, definitely if you feel like there's an issue in, in your game, if you feel like maybe the players aren't having that much fun, or maybe you're not having that much fun, or whatever, definitely if you feel like there's some kind of issue, you should definitely check in with the players and, and see what they think. But even when you think things are fine, you know, every once in a while, you know, every few sessions or so, I, I would recommend just asking the players, uh, hey, are you having fun? What do you think? That that kind of thing. Um, it can be it can be really helpful. And yeah, so so that's my my little uh, word of wisdom, my, my little lesson that, that I've learned recently from my game. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of what what this show is all about is learning from, you know, our mistakes and and our triumphs from uh, learning from one GM to another. So, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully you can learn uh, from from my screw ups. (laughs) All right, so today we are getting back into the DMG, finally uh, out of set or out of chapter one. Uh, Took us a while to get through chapter one, and uh, chapter two is another doozy. In fact, I think as far as page count, 
I think chapter two is actually longer than chapter one. I don't know for sure. I didn't, I didn't check the numbers. Uh, so that, that may not be true, but, uh, chapter two is definitely, uh, a doozy and there's a lot of material in this chapter. I'm still considering, um, how I'm going to approach this. Uh, this chapter is called creating a multiverse and we start out with, with general discussion of, uh, the outer planes and, and how to deal with them. And then we go into discussion on each plane individually. So this is something that I would really like your feedback on. I'd really like to hear from you on this. Um, you know, how much time do you want me to spend on this material? Today, uh, I'm going to start talking about just the the planes in general and the role that the planes play in, in your game. Um, but as far as the individual planes, uh, that is something where I could go into more detail on each plane, maybe even do one episode for, for each plane, or I, I could kind of, you know, speed through them and, and just give very broad overviews. Right now, I'm kind of leaning towards the more in-depth treatment, partly because compared with what we've had in previous editions, there's not a lot on the planes in this book. And I do have uh, still my copy of the Manual of the Planes from third edition, uh, which does have a lot more information on each of the planes individually. So if I were going to do a more thorough treatment of the planes, I could pull in some information uh, from that, which is kind of what I was thinking, because one of the things that has been lost in fifth edition is there used to be a lot more interesting things happening on the planes and with the planes, especially uh, mechanically. And that has really been watered down in fifth edition to the point now where each plane has kind of one interesting thing about it mechanically and that's it so for my personal game when i get to the planes i plan to use at least some of the stuff from third edition and maybe even first edition as far as some of the mechanics involved with being on the various planes because i think it's part of what makes the planes interesting and and if you just have one little mechanic that is on, say, the plane of fire versus the material plane, it, you know, it's like it's not really that different. And, and the planes are completely different worlds with completely different rules, even physical rules and things like that. And in previous editions, the, the gravity was different on different planes and things like that, um, which is really interesting. And, and I think I, I mean, I get with with fifth edition, they're trying to keep it very simple and rules light. But I feel like at least when it came to the planes, they they took too much away to the point where they're not really that interesting anymore. And it's kind of like, why even bother with them? So that's the way I'm leaning. But I'm definitely open to feedback from you about uh, how much time you'd like to see me spend on on the outer planes. So uh, give me a holler at GameMastersJourney at gmail.com. All right. So today... Uh, we start with chapter two, uh, creating a multiverse. So when adventurers reach higher levels, their path extends to other dimensions of reality, the planes of existence that form the multiverse. The characters might be called on to rescue a friend from the horrific depths of the abyss 
or to sail the shining waters of the river Oceanus. They can hoist a tankard with the friendly giants of Isgard or face the chaos of Limbo to contact a wizened Gisserai sage. Planes of existence define the extremes of strange and often dangerous environments, or at least they did in previous editions. (laughs) The most bizarre locations present settings undreamed of in the natural world. Planar adventurers often, or (laughs) hang on, Planar adventures offer unprecedented dangers and wonders. Adventurers walk on streets made of solid fire or test their mettle on a battlefield where the fallen are resurrected with each dawn. So, you know, kind of, I think the key takeaway here is the outer planes are for high level play. And I think this is part of my issue with how they're treated in fifth edition is and I think this is kind of a holdover from from Planescape from second edition where there was an attempt made to make the planes accessible to lower level play. And again, I get where they were coming from. The idea being, you know, well, most campaigns don't ever get to high level. And if, you know, adventuring on the on the planes is is reserved for high level play, then most players and and GMs will will never see them or use them because they're they seldom get to to high level play. Um, so hey, let's let's make them accessible to low levels so that so that you can use them. So I totally get that. I just don't agree with it. You know, I mean, to me, in in my past of of especially playing D anD D, but also running it. You know, the the fact that the planes were out there and there were these, you know, strange environments to explore, but that they were so hard to get to and they were so dangerous that you didn't even want to think about it until you were high level. To me, that was always a motivation to keep playing. That was a motivation to get to high level, whether I was a player or a game master. If I was a player, I wanted to get my character to high level so I could venture on the planes and see what that's about. If I was a game master, I wanted to get the player characters to high level so we could do things with the planes. So, you know, I get it. If you're running D&D for 30 years and you've never had a high level campaign that you feel like you're missing out. But why not just run a high level campaign? There's no rule written anywhere that says you have to start at level one. Why not start at level 10 or level 15 or level 17 or level 20, whatever you want to do? I mean, to, to me, that's the solution to the problem, right? Let's not neuter the planes. Let's not bubble wrap the planes so that they're safe for lower level characters. Let's just start a campaign that's a high level campaign. Or let's put together a group that's seriously committed to getting to high level because we want to adventure on the planes. And then we can have all of the rich reward of exploring this strange and distant and dangerous environment. Um, because I feel like adventuring on the planes at low level, it's like, I don't know, like, what's the point? It's just another place to adventure at that point. Um, it, all the wonder has, has been lost. So yeah. So, you know, in early editions of the game, the planes were, were for high level play, which is as I think, as it should be. The various planes of existence are realms of myth and mystery. They're not simply other worlds, but dimensions formed and governed by spiritual and elemental principles. So right away, see, the planes are interesting because they're very 
subjective. And, and what I mean by that is I think the planes more than any other setting element of D&D are very um, open to DM interpretation. And I think that if you take your setting as a whole, if you're a homebrewing DM that's building your own world, I think the planes are where you're going to see the most variation among homebrewed settings. If you compare different homebrewed settings that different DMs have come up with, you know, a lot of those settings are going to be the same in a lot of ways. They're going to have a lot of similarities, but I think where you could really see DMs going outside the box is when it comes to the planes, because the planes as presented here in the DMG and then D&D overall make a lot of assumptions. And those are assumptions that as a DM building your own setting, you can accept or not accept that you can run with them or you can reject them. So for instance, in, in this bit, I just read, you know, very fundamental, the planes are dimensions formed and governed by spiritual and elemental principles. So for example, in my homebrew setting of Primordia, um, I'm basically taking the word spiritual out of that sentence because when they're talking, when they're saying spiritual, what they really mean is alignment. What they're getting at here, and we're going to get more into this, is that the planes are fundamentally tied in with the concept of alignment. And if you're a DM like me who doesn't uh, care for alignment as a fundamental building block of the universe, um, if you prefer alignment just to be a descriptive uh, tool used to kind of try to get at a character's morality, then you may not want to use that. Um, so we'll, we'll get more into that as, as we go. The outer planes are realms of spirituality and thought. They are the spheres where celestials, fiends, and deities exist. The plane of Elysium, for example, isn't merely a place where good creatures dwell and not even simply the place where spirits of good creatures go when they die. It is the plane of goodness, a spiritual realm where evil can't flourish. It is as much a state of being and of mind as it is a physical location. And right here, um, again, we're, we're on this topic of alignment in the planes. Uh, right here, I think, is one of the major flaws with the planes as presented in D&D, uh, this, this tying them to alignment. And this is the perfect uh, illustration of one of the ways that that flaw rears its head which, it, which is what it just said here, it, you know, like Elysium and the other good aligned planes, there's no evil there. There's no evil creatures. There's no evil anything. And, you know, you will see discussion about how, you know, DMs don't use the good aligned planes because they're boring. How can you have an adventure on Elysium when there's nothing evil? Presumably the, the player characters are good or neutral at least. So, you know, what conflict is there really to find on a plane where there is no evil and where every person, every being on that plane, even the freaking animals, all have the exact same alignment? And, you know, it's almost like being in a place where everybody's brainwashed to the same uh, worldview or whatever. Um, not only would that be a dreadfully boring place to be, but it's it's like if you're on the plane, you you agree with that worldview. So there's no conflict. If you don't agree with the worldview, then you're you're not on the plane. Or if you are on the plane, you're not going to stay there very long because the plane itself is hostile to you 
because your alignment doesn't match its alignment. So that's a real problem. Now, the evil planes aren't so bad because, again, presumably the player characters are good or neutral. So they go to an evil plane and it's kind of the opposite of a good plane. Good plane is like, there's no story here. It's boring. Evil plane is there's almost wall to wall story because everything here is going to be in opposition to the player characters. Everything they encounter is going to be a conflict because everything is, for instance, chaotic evil if we're talking about the abyss. So, you know, DMs tend to use the evil planes a lot, or at least in comparison to the good planes, they use them a lot and and the good planes, uh, not so much. And the neutral planes are kind of in between depending on the plane itself and, and how it works. So me personally, I see that as an inherent fundamental flaw with the planes as conceptualized. And um, the easy way to solve that is to divorce the planes from alignment. And suddenly you can make every plane interesting and unique in some place worth adventuring in. The inner planes exemplify the physical essence and elemental nature of air, earth, fire, and water. The elemental plane of fire, for example, embodies the essence of fire. The plane's entire substance is suffused with the fundamental nature of fire, energy, passion, transformation, and destruction. Even objects of solid brass or basalt seem to dance with flame in a visible and palpable manifestation of the vibrancy of fire's dominion. In this context, the material plane is the nexus where all these philosophical and elemental forces collide in the jumbled existence of mortal life and matter. The worlds of D&D exist within the material plane, making it the starting point for most campaigns and adventures. The rest of the multiverse, multiplace, there you go. Uh, The rest of the multiverse is defined in relation to the material plane. So now we talk about planar categories. And, you know, something I want to point out, and I think the DMG itself points this out at some point, but but I'm going to point it out earlier right now, um, is that when it comes to these categories, how the planes are organized, how they connect together and things like that, that's really, um, what's the word? It's really ephemeral. Like this is stuff when you start thinking about the planes, this is stuff you could easily run a campaign. You could easily run many campaigns and never even think about it unless, uh, your player characters are going to go to the, the planes or unless you have wizards or clerics or other spellcasters that are using things like the astral plane and the ethereal plane a lot, it's not going to matter. And even if player characters are traveling the planes, they're never going to really know for sure how the planes fit together, how they're organized or whatever. You know, here on the earth, you can get up in an airplane and go really high altitude and you can see you can look down on the earth and, and you can see the continents and the land masses and the oceans and all that good stuff. You can see how it all fits together. You can never get that kind of perspective with, with the planes of existence. You can never get a bird's eye view of all the planes and see how they connect together. So even really in canon, um, no one really knows for sure how the planes work. And definitely when you're coming up with your setting, you know, you can say that that people don't know how the planes work. And and that's what I do in Primordia. So we're going to talk about here in a little bit about the different um, ways you can conceptualize the planes. Uh, three examples are the Great Wheel, the World Tree, 
and the world axis. So for instance, in Primordia, those are three theories that people have about how the planes are put together, but no one knows for sure. The only person that knows for sure is the dungeon master, which is me. All right, cool. Just got to uh, ban someone from the chat. That's always fun. All right. So where were we? Planar categories. And also these categories have shifted a bit throughout the editions. So if you're really into the planes or if you're really wanting to develop them for your setting, I highly recommend uh, checking what other editions did with them um, and finding the one that, that you like. Because even the uh, distinction of, for instance, the inner planes has changed throughout the editions as far as which planes are inner planes and which aren't. So we have the material plane and its echoes. So this is the Feywild and the Shadowfell, which are reflections of the material plane. So they kind of overlay the material plane and they reflect it. So the idea is, let's say you're on the material plane and you're on top of a very tall mountain as part of a mountain range. If you were to translate to the Feywild, you would also be on the same mountain or the same thing in the Shadowfell. It would be a very different looking mountain, very different looking uh, terrain, but it would mirror uh, that same spot on the prime material plane. You then have the transitive planes. This is the ethereal plane and the astral plane, which are mostly featureless planes that serve primarily as pathways to travel from one place to another, which is another way to say that they're pretty boring and underdeveloped planes. So you know, if you're going to use, for instance, the astral plane a lot in your campaign, I encourage you to do more with it than what's done with it in the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. Use this as your launching off point, but, you know, develop it more so it is a more interesting place. Because if it's really a boring and featureless place, why would you ever want to waste game time uh, exploring it, right? Even if the player characters go on a massive journey through the astral plane, you could just hand wave it or montage it because it was boring and uneventful. Um, so if you actually want to spend time on the astral plane, then make it interesting. We then have the inner planes, which are the four elemental planes, air, earth, fire, and water, plus the elemental chaos that surrounds them. Um, so elemental chaos, I'm not sure when that was added. That wasn't a thing back in the day. Uh, so, you know, that's something you could totally throw out and be more in keeping with, say, first and second edition uh, versions of the planes. Um, so, you know, if you're not a fan of the Elder Chaos, check out some of those earlier editions. Check out the, uh, I don't think that was even a thing in third edition, but I'm not sure. I'll have to look at my manual of the planes from third edition. I wish I still had the uh, first edition manual of the planes, um, but you could probably get a PDF of it. I should see if I can get a PDF of it. Um, we then have the outer planes. Uh, so in here, there are 16 outer planes, which correspond to the eight non-neutral alignments and the shades of difference between them. So there you go. So again, if, if you're rejecting the planes being tied to alignment as I am, uh, suddenly that number doesn't have to be 18 anymore. It doesn't have to be a multiple of six. You can have as many or as few outer planes as you want. And then you have the positive and negative planes, which I think back in the day, those were considered inner planes along with the uh, elemental planes. So that's 
just another way that the conceptualizations of the planes has changed over the years. So now we talk about putting the planes together. So, so we've got, you know, the material planes, the echo planes, which are Feywild and the Shadowfell. You've got your transitive planes, which are the astral and ethereal. And, you know, transitive, you know, transitioning from one place to another, uh, which is just referencing that that's what those planes are most often used for, is ways to travel from, from A to B. And uh, we've got the inner planes, which are your elemental planes, the outer planes, and then the positive and negative planes. So how do these all fit together? Well, that's that's up to you as the game master and world builder. But there are some um, kind of pre-made versions here that, that you could use. So as described in the PHB, the assumed D&D cosmology includes more than two dozen planes. For your campaign, you decide what planes to include inspired by the standard planes drawn from Earth's myths or created by your own imagination. Now, this is this is a really important part here. So if you are going to do something with the planes other than what's just presented in the books, if you're going to kind of put your own spin on the planes, you definitely want to check out here on page 43 of the DMG under putting the planes together. You want to check out this bulleted list here, which kind of tells you at the minimum what your campaign is probably going to need from the from the planes. So first, you need a plane of origin for fiends. You need a plane of origin for celestials. You need a plane of origin for elementals. You need a place for deities, which might include any or all of the previous three planes. So, you know, you could put your deities on the planes where the fiends come from or the celestials come from or the elementals come from or, or all of them, or they could be completely different. The place where mortal spirits go after death, which might include any or all of the first three. A way of getting from one plane to another. A way for spells and monsters that use the astral plane and the ethereal plane to function. So those are the things. If you've got those bases covered, then you're not going to have any issues with something coming up in your game and you don't know what to do. For instance, uh, the phase spider is a monster that uses the ethereal plane. It can transition from the prime material to the ethereal and back again, and it uses that uh, in combat to great effect. So if you're going to say in your campaign setting, there is no ethereal plane, then you need to decide, well, what do I do with phase spiders and other creatures that use the, the ethereal plane? I, I need to figure out another way to make those abilities work or, or figure something out. Same thing with the astral plane. So I believe still in fifth edition, spells like teleport and, and other spells actually use the astral plane as a, as a shortcut way to get from A to B on the prime material plane. So if you're going to say there's no astral plane, or if you're going to say my astral plane is very different from what's presented in the books, then you're going to need to consider how that's going to affect those spells and other things that, that use the astral plane. So once you've decided on the planes you want to use, putting them into a coherent cosmology is an optional step. So it's an optional step. You can just say, these are the planes that people know about that are available and just stop there. You don't have to put them together into some kind of jigsaw puzzle, but you can if you want to. Since the primary way of traveling from plane to plane, even using the transitive planes, is through magical portals that link planes together, 
the exact relationship of different planes to one another is largely a theoretical concern, which is to say it's, it's not going to matter <laughs> in, in practice. No being in the multiverse can look down and see the planes in their arrangement the same way as we look at a diagram in a book. No mortal can verify whether Mount Celestia is sandwiched between Bitopia and Arcadia, but it's a convenient theoretical construct based on the philosophical shading among the three planes and the relative importance they give to law and good. So that's an excellent point to think about. These presentations of how the planes are organized all are using alignment to organize them. So, so you know, neutral good is going to be next to lawful good and, and things like that. Like all your good planes are kind of grouped together and all your evil planes are grouped together. So if you're not using that, if you're not tying the planes to alignment, then you can throw all that out the window if you want to. And you, you can completely change, you know, which planes border which planes and things like that because they're all that's all built around that assumption so if, if that assumption goes out the window then the rest of it goes too and you can really do whatever you want sages have constructed a few such theoretical models to make sense of the jumble of planes particularly the outer planes the three most common are the great wheel the world tree and the world axis but you can create or adapt whatever model works best for the planes you want to use in your game. All right, and we'll talk about those shortly. There's also a little sidebar here about inventing your own planes. Each of the planes described in this chapter has at least one significant effect on travelers who venture there. When you design your own planes, it's a good idea to stick to that model. Create one simple trait that players notice that doesn't create too much complication at the gaming table and that's easy to remember. Try to reflect the philosophy and mood of the place, not merely its physical characteristics. And again, I would urge you to come up with more than one because, you know, the, the, the plane should be truly alien and strange places, which is going to take more than one simple, easy to remember little mechanic or variation, at least in my opinion. You're, you're going to want to do more than that. All right. So as far as how we can put planes together, uh, the default assumption is usually the great wheel. And this visualizes the planes as a group of concentric wheels with the material plane and its echoes at the center. The inner planes form a wheel around the material plane enveloped in the ethereal plane, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to go into detail on these. Um, so the great wheel is the one uh, described in the PHB. I, I believe there's a diagram of it back in one of the appendices in the PHB. And that's, that's the great wheel. So, you know, if you don't want to put a lot of thought or design time into the planes and you just want to use the cannon and run with it, that's that's what you want to use. Uh, we also have the world tree, um, which is similar to what we see in Norse mythology. And we have the world axis um, where the material plane and its echoes stand between two opposing realms. The astral plane or astral sea floats above them. Um, below is the, the material plane is the elemental chaos. So that's yet another way uh, you could do it. So what I think is, is more interesting um, because, I mean, if you're going to use one of those, you just use one of those and, and that's the end of it. Um, what I think is more interesting is coming up with your own conceptions and we have some ideas for that. So as you build your own cosmology, which cosmology is just how the universe is put together. So, so in a D and D sense, we're talking about, 
you know, how do the various outer planes, inner planes, transitive planes, etc., how do they fit together with the uh, prime material plane? How do the various worlds of the prime material plane fit together? You know, do Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and your homebrew setting exist in the same universe or not, or the same multiverse? Um, so that's what, what cosmology is referring to. Just how, do, how does all of that fit together? How does it work? So first we have the Omniverse. This simple cosmology covers the bare minimum. So you have a material plane, the transitive planes, a single elemental chaos, an overheaven where good aligned deities and celestials live, and the underworld where evil deities and fiends live. So this is, is if you want something really simple, but that covers all the bases, uh, the omniverse is, is for you. Next, we have myriad planes. In this cosmology, countless planes clump together like soap bubbles, intersecting with each other more or less at random. Next, we have the orrery. Or, orrery? All the inner and outer planes orbit the material plane, exerting greater or lesser influence on the world as they come nearer and farther. Uh, so the world of Eberron uses this model. Um, the winding road. In this cosmology, every plane is a stop along an infinite road. Each plane is adjacent to two others, but there's no necessary cohesion between adjacent planes. A traveler can walk from the slopes of Mount Celestia onto the slopes of Gehenna. So the winding road, I think, is pretty cool. And um, I think if you were going to run a campaign where the entire campaign was about traveling the planes, uh, the winding road would be a cool cosmology to use for a plane like that because it would make it a little more manageable because maybe the the players are um, traveling something like the River Styx or the River Oceanus or Oceanus. <laughs> can't talk today um, where it's a linear path through the planes. So you as a DM know, okay, after this plane, they're going to go to that plane. And then that plane helps you uh, plan ahead a little bit. Um, and also gives the, the player characters a way that they can kind of visit all the planes in order um, while they're, they're on their journey to get the MacGuffin or, or go wherever they're ultimately trying to go. So I think the winding road is a great cosmology to use for a plane where you're going to, where the whole campaign is going to be about traveling the planes. Then we have Mount Olympus. In the Greek cosmology, Mount Olympus stands at the center of the world, or the material plane in D&D terms, with its peak so high that it's actually another plane of existence. Olympus, the home of the gods. All the Greek gods except Hades have their domains within Olympus. In Hades, named for its ruler, Mortal souls linger as insubstantial shades until they eventually fade into nothing. Tartarus, where the Titans are imprisoned in endless darkness, lies below Hades. And far to the west of the known world in the material plane are the blessed Elysian fields. The souls of great heroes reside there. Another way you could do your cosmology is the solar barge. The Egyptian cosmology is defined by the daily path of the sun across the sky of the material plane, down to the fair offering fields in the west, where the souls of the righteous live in eternal reward, and then beneath the world through the nightmarish twelve hours of night. The solar barge is a tiny outer plane in its own right, though it exists within the astral plane and the other outer planes in the different stages of its journey. So that's really cool, especially if you are making a setting or a part of your setting 
that's inspired by ancient Egypt, you know, uh, that would be a really cool way to, to do your cosmology for that setting. And remember, you know, there's no reason you couldn't use different cosmologies for different campaigns in the same setting, because these are all uh, theoretical constructions made by sages. And there's no guarantee that any of these are right. Um, and it's really ultimately irrelevant anyway. Because like, like I said earlier, most of the times when you're traveling from one plane to another, you're going to use a portal. So it doesn't really matter how that fits into the scheme of things or, or what planes border that plane because you're using a portal. It doesn't matter. And even if you're traveling something like the River Styx, there's no reason that the River Styx has to go through the planes in the order that they're arranged. The River Styx could be moving through some, some higher dimension in uh, jumping seemingly from one plane to another and skipping planes. I, I mean, it could do whatever you want. So don't feel like just because like, let's say in Primordia, I do a campaign and I decide I'm going to use the winding road cosmology for that campaign does not mean that I have to say the winding road is the cosmology of Primordia or it's the only cosmology. It doesn't mean that I couldn't in the next campaign use the Mount Olympus cosmology if I wanted to. So yeah, you, you don't have to be limited by these ideas at all. Uh, next, we have one world. In this model, there are no other planes of existence, but the material plane includes places like the bottomless abyss, the shouting Mount Celestia, the strange city of Mechanus, the fortress of Acheron, and so on. All the planes are locations in the world reachable by ordinary means of travel, though extraordinary effort is required for example, to sail across the sea to the Blessed Isles of Elysium. So this is something I seriously considered doing uh, with Primordia because I liked the idea of, like in the Odyssey, for instance, you're, you're in a ship out at sea, there's a storm, you get blown off course, uh, you end up in some, at some strange island where the laws of physics are different, where a god or multiple gods live there. Things are really strange and, and in, in all ways is, is as a, an outer plane would be. Um, but you just got there through mundane means. You didn't have to use a high level spell. You didn't have to go through a portal. You, you got there on your ship or you could get there uh, by walking like like if it's like Mount Olympus and it's at the top of a mountain, you, you climb this mountain and suddenly you're in a whole nother reality. Um, I think that's a really cool concept and it would be a lot of fun to play with. So I seriously considered doing the one world cosmology for, for my setting of Primordia, but ultimately decided to do something else. And then we have the other world. In this model, the material plane has a twin realm that fills the role of all the other planes. Much like the Feywild, it overlays the material plane and it can be reached through thin places where the worlds are particularly close, through caves, by sailing far across the sea, or in fairy rings in remote forests. It has dark, evil regions, homes of fiends and evil gods, sacred isles, homes of celestials and the spirits of the blessed dead, and realms of elemental fury. This other world is sometimes overseen by an eternal city or by four cities that each represent a different aspect of reality. The Celtic cosmology has an other world called Tir Nanag, and the cosmologies of some religions inspired by Asian myth have a similar spirit world. So yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's super cool. And, um, 
you know, without without giving any spoilers of, of my upcoming campaign, um, what I ultimately ended up doing with the Outer Plains for Primordia uh, pulls on quite a few ideas from um, this other world uh, concept. And, and as I already mentioned, there's actually disagreement among sages of Primordia as to the nature of the Outer Plains and how they fit together. So some sages think it's a great wheel. Some sages think it's a great tree. Some sages think it's something else entirely. And they argue constantly because there's no way to know which, if any of those theories are correct, which uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty awesome. Actually, I like uh, I like having some uncertainty in, in my setting because just because I know everything doesn't mean anyone in the world does. This is Mike Shalai, and you're listening to Game Master's Journey. I want to take a minute to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. It's because of the patrons that all the listeners of Game Master's Journey enjoy a bonus episode every month as well as the monthly Game Master's Journey live stream. So really two bonus episodes every month. I would also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier five patron, Steve. Let's hear it for Steve. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at StarWalkerStudios.com. All right, returning to our discussion of the Outer Plains from Chapter 2 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. So we've kind of talked a bit about the, the planes overall, uh, how they fit together, some, some different cosmologies you could use for your setting. So now we're going to talk about how you actually get around on the planes. How do you get to these strange places and, and have adventures on them? When adventurers travel to other planes of existence, they undertake a legendary journey that might force them to face supernatural guardians and undergo various ordeals. The nature of that journey and the trials along the way depend in part on the means of travel and whether the adventurers find a magic portal or use a spell to carry them. So we'll start out talking about portals. Portal is a general term for a stationary interplanar connection that links a specific location on one plane to a specific location on another. Some portals function like doorways, appearing as a clear window or fog-shrouded passage, and interplanar travel is as simple as stepping through the doorway. Other portals are locations, circles of standing stones, soaring towers, sailing ships, or even whole towns that exist in multiple planes at once or flicker from one plane to another. Some are vortices, joining an elemental plane with a very similar location on the material plane, such as the heart of a volcano leading to the plane of fire or the depths of the ocean leading to the plane of water. And these vortices are, are a great way uh, to 
kind of uh, fantasize. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to use that word. Kind of a cool way to fantasize uh, natural disasters and and phenomenon. So, so example, the idea of the heart of a volcano being a vortice into the plane of fire. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty cool concept, and and it would be kind of a cool adventure uh, for say player characters that want to go to the plane of fire, maybe they want to go to the city of brass and they don't have a means to get there. So they, they go into a volcano looking for a vortice. That could be a pretty fun adventure. And, and who knows what kind of uh, unpredictable things uh, could happen to those player characters. Passing through a planar, planar portal can be the simplest way to travel from the material plane to a desired location on another plane. Most of the time, though, a portal presents an adventure in and of itself, which is awesome. First, the adventurers must find the portal that leads where they want to go. Most portals exist in distant locations, and a portal's location often has thematic similarities to the plane it leads to. For example, a portal to the heavenly mountain of Celestia might be located on a mountain peak. Makes sense, right? Second, so first of all, the portal could be hard to find and hard to get to. Second, portals often have guardians charged with ensuring that undesirable people don't pass through. Depending on the portal's destination, undesirable people might include evil characters, good characters, cowards, thieves, anyone wearing a robe, or any mortal creature. A portal's guardian is typically a powerful magical creature, such as a genie, a sphinx, a titan, or a native of the portal's destination plane. So I, I think another obvious choice here would be a celestial or a fiend, especially if you're going to an outer plane or, or some other plane where a deity lives. Finally, most portals don't stand open all the time, but only open in particular situations or when a certain requirement is met. A portal can have any conceivable requirement, but the following are the most common. So first we have time. The portal functions only at particular times, during a full moon on the material plane, or every 10 days, or when the stars are in a particular position. Once it opens, such a portal remains open for a limited time, such as for three days following the full moon, or for an hour, or for 1d4 plus one rounds, or for whatever you want it to be. Another possibility is situation. The portal functions only if a particular condition is met. A situation key portal opens on a clear night or when it rains or when a certain spell is cast in its vicinity. Another possibility would be random. A random portal functions for a random period, then shuts down for a similarly random duration. Typically, such a portal allows 1d6 plus 6 travelers to pass through, then shuts down for 1d6 days. Another possibility is a command word. The portal functions only if a particular command word is spoken. Sometimes the word must be spoken as a character passes through the portal, which is otherwise a mundane doorway, window, or similar opening. Other portals open when the command word is spoken and remain open for a short time. And finally, our last example is a key. The portal functions if the traveler is holding a particular object. The item acts much like a key to a door. This key item can be a common object or a particular key created for that portal. The city of Sigil above the Outlands is known as the City of Doors because it features an overwhelming number of such item-keyed portals. 
Learning and meeting a portal's requirements can draw characters into further adventures as they chase down a key item, scour old libraries for command words, or consult sages to find the right time to visit the portal. Now I want to just take a, a quick aside here and once again uh, remind you of the fine GM art called Stalling. <laughs> so it's a well-known fact that as a, a human game master, it is beyond our capability to always be able to predict 100% accurately what the players are going to do in a given session. And it's pretty easy to see how the players suddenly deciding to visit a, an outer plane or any other plane, uh, if you don't see that coming, right, that, that can be a difficult thing to just handle on the fly, right? Because maybe they decide that they're going to go to the abyss for some reason. You didn't foresee them deciding to go to the abyss. You haven't read up on the abyss. You haven't prepared for an adventure in the abyss. You maybe don't even know thing one about the abyss. You need some time, right? You need to stall. So right here, what we just talked about, you know, the fact that just finding a portal could be an adventure of in and of itself. And then figuring out how to open the portal could be an adventure in and of itself. And then finding whatever you need in order to open the portal could be an adventure in and of itself. Right there, you've got three adventures during which you can be figuring out what the abyss is going to be like, what's going to happen there and how to deal with it. You know, so, so, you know, th this is a great tool that you can use because I, I, I don't know, you know, I just see this as something that, that probably happens a lot where, you know, maybe, okay, for instance, I, I can think of an instance from, from a game I'm playing in as a player. Uh, my, my character needs to travel to a distant part of the world and um, I'm, I'm a 14th level cleric now. So one of my first thoughts I had was, hey, you know, maybe because like I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm always looking for a reason or, or an excuse to go to the planes. I'm like, maybe I could use some kind of planar travel to make that trip faster and easier. I was thinking like using the astral plane, for example, would be the, the maybe the ideal way to do that. Unfortunately for me and my character, um, Upon doing research, I, I don't, I can't cast astral projection and I don't really have a way right now that I could use planar travel that would make the journey shorter or easier. But if I did, I could have in the middle of a session out of nowhere, you know, maybe the GM is thinking we're going to take a ship or maybe he's thinking we're going to hike over land or maybe he's thinking we're going to figure out a way to use a teleportation circle and I blindside him with, hey, I can cast astral projection. We're going to travel to the astral plane. You know, so that could be a thing where, you know, maybe the, the GM uh, isn't ready to run a thing on the astral plane. You know, so figuring out a way to stall uh, can often be very helpful. Now, I guess this isn't the best example because, uh, you know, that doesn't um, involve using a portal. But as I just mentioned, you know, astral projection is a ninth level spell. You have to be, I think, what, 17th level before you get access to ninth level spells. I'm only 14th level. So that's not a possibility for me. So, you know, if I wanted to pursue that uh, that option, I can't cast astral projection. So maybe I'd, I'd be like, hey, maybe we can find a portal 
to the astral plane, right? Now my DM can stall because, well, first we have to find out if such a thing exists. If so, where? Once we find it, we have to figure out how to enter it. You know, um, we might have to deal with some kind of guardian. You know, maybe we're, we'll have a sphinx that's going to ask us riddles or, or there might be a trial by combat or or ordeal or who knows. Somehow we're going to have to get past this guardian. Um, so, you know, the DM could, could easily, uh, keep us dealing with that stuff for multiple sessions while he's preparing, uh, whatever's going to happen on the astral plane and beyond. So, um, definitely don't, um, overlook the fine art of stalling. <laughs> All right. So that was planar portals. So next, uh, another way that, that you can get to the planes is using spells like the aforementioned astral projection. A number of spells allow direct or indirect access to other planes of existence. Plane shift and gate can directly transport adventurers to any other plane with different degrees of precision. Etheralness allows adventurers to enter the ethereal plane. And the astral projection spell lets adventurers project themselves into the astral plane and from there to travel to the other planes or outer planes. So uh, we have a discussion on the plane shift spell, which actually my dwarf uh, cleric can cast. The plane shift spell has two important limitations. Uh, this <laughs> maybe I should do it episode of the show someday on limitations of spells. Um, as someone who occasionally watches uh, and listens to actual play, um, this is an area I see a lot of GMs overlooking, uh, which is the limitations of spells. Spells, especially certain spells, are extremely powerful abilities that, that players get in the game. And a big, huge way that the power of these spells are balanced as far as keeping these characters who have access to these spells balanced with characters who don't, as well as just keeping some, some semblance of balance between the player characters and the rest of the world, um, a key element of that balance is the limitations of the spells themselves. So if you're ignoring those or forgetting those as a GM, or if you're allowing your players to forget them or conveniently overlook them, then you are... Um, you're you're not you're not using the tools that are given to you to keep that balance, which means your spellcasters who have access to those spells are going to be even more overpowered compared to other characters who don't. And the options that your player characters have available to them are going to be far beyond what the game is assuming, which means your um you know your CR calculations and your encounter building calculations are are going to be pretty much useless at that point. So key limitations of spells to keep an eye on as a DM. Anytime a player says, I cast this spell, uh, one limitation is casting time. How long does it take? There's a lot of spells that aren't practical to use in combat because they take a minute or more to cast. Some spells take an hour. Some spells take eight hours to cast. So always pay attention to the casting time. There's so many times on, on like actual plays um, I'll, I'll see a player character use a way overpowered spell in combat um, that they shouldn't be able to use in combat, but they are able to because both the player and the GM uh, don't notice the fact that this spell takes a minute to cast, which would be 10 rounds of concentration, or it takes an hour to cast or a day to cast or, or whatever. So casting time is a big limitation. 
Another big limitation is components, specifically material components, even more specifically, material components that have a cost next to them. So, you know, your your spellcasters get a material component pouch or they get a focus, which covers all material components that don't have a cost. So if there's no cost, you don't have to worry about components. But a lot of the more powerful spells in the game have pretty uh, stringent costs. For example, the Hero's Feast spell, which is one of the most, if not the most powerful buff type spell in the game, costs, I believe, a thousand gold uh, worth of material components that are consumed by the spell. So every time a player character casts Hero's Feast, it should cost a thousand gold to cast. Uh, all of the resurrection type spells cost gold to cast. Um, I think Raise Dead costs 500 um, just as a benchmark. Uh, could be wrong about that, but but again, you know, pay attention to those. Now, some spells have a material cost. It's just a thing that you buy one time and you can use it forever. For instance, Chromatic Orb, which is an awesome low-level combat spell, uh, requires a component... I think it costs 50 gold, something like that. It's not super expensive, but it's expensive enough that your average uh, first level character probably can't afford it. But you only have to buy that thing once. And then as long as you don't lose it or someone doesn't steal it from you or it's not destroyed somehow, you can use that every time you cast a spell. On the other hand, a spell like Resurrection that needs a diamond where something like a thousand gold pieces, I think that component is consumed which means that the spell destroys the diamond in the process of being cast, which means each time you cast that spell, it costs you a thousand gold, like, like the hero's feast. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big limitation because, you know, you only have so much gold, you know, um, a perfect example of this is the stone skin spell. So my cleric character, uh, has, Stone skin actually as a domain spell. Um, I'm a war cleric. It's one of my domain spells. I've never used it because it has a material cost. I think it's a thousand gold and it's consumed every time you cast a spell. Um, so that's one main reason I never use it. The other main reason is it's useless for me because um, I already have the heavy armor feet. So stone skin isn't like super useful to me. Definitely not worth a thousand gold. Now it could be a useful spell to cast on someone else, but it costs a thousand gold. And it's also a concentration spell, which is a third big uh, limiting factor when it comes to spells is concentration. You can only concentrate on one spell at a time. So, you know, as a GM, when a player casts a spell in game, especially if it's a powerful spell, especially if it's a spell that's going to be almost like a, I win this encounter kind of spell, or, or does something really powerful or game changing, look at the casting time, look at any material component costs and look at whether it's a uh, concentration or not. And uh, if you pay attention to those three things, you're going to avoid the vast majority of overpowered, broken things that spellcasters will do in your game if you're not paying attention to those. Anyway, tangent over. All right. So going back to plane shift. Um, so we're going to talk about the material requirement for this spell. So plane shift has two important limiting factors. The first one is the material component, which is a small forked metal rod, like a tuning fork attuned to the desired planar destination. This spell requires the proper resonating frequency to home in 
on the correct location and the fork must be made of the right material, sometimes a complex alloy, to focus the spell's magic properly. Crafting the fork is expensive, costs at least 250 gold pieces, which means it could cost more. Minimum of 250 gold pieces. But even the act of researching the correct specifications can lead to adventure. After all, not many people voluntarily travel into the depths of Carceri, so very few know what kind of tuning fork is required to get there. So that's this is a really important point about the limitation of material components. Not only does the player character or the group need to be able to afford said component, they need to be able to actually obtain it and they need to have obtained it already, right? Um, so, you know, these forks is a perfect example. You know, if, if you want to go somewhere like Carceri, that's a place that people in your setting don't commonly visit or never visit, just the act of figuring out what kind of fork you need, what materials it needs to be made out of, how it needs to be made could be in an adventure in itself. You're, you're not just going to go into a store and buy one, right? I mean, <laughs> you're not just going to be able to go into some magic item shop and buy a tuning fork, a tune the carceri for 250 gold pieces. And, and if you can do that in your setting, I mean, more power to you, but, but you're uh, sidestepping one of the major limitations uh, to this kind of magic, which, you know, is going to lead to these kinds of things happening more easily in your game than it, than it would uh, normally. And, and then what the uh, game assumes. Okay. So, so we've got the, the tuning fork that we need to, to cast plane ship. So we need to have the correct tuning fork needs to be made in the correct way. Uh, second, the spell doesn't send the caster to a specific location unless he or she has specialized information. The sigil sequence of a teleportation circle located on another plane allows the caster to travel directly to that circle, but such knowledge is even harder to come by than the specifications of the required tuning fork. So if you thought figuring out how to make a tuning fork to get you to Carceri was hard, learning the sigil sequence for a specific teleportation circle on Carceri is going to be way harder. Otherwise, so if you if you don't know a sequence to a teleportation circle, if you just cast a spell, the spell transports the caster to a location in the general vicinity of the desired spot. Wherever the adventurers arrive, they'll most likely still need to undertake a journey to reach the object of a planar quest. So, you know, they to even appear somewhere other than a random location on the, the plane, they need to have knowledge of a specific place on the plane. So, for instance, um, you know, one thing I've always floated to to my players in in fifth edition as an option when they get to higher level is, you know, in Primordia, I don't so much have magic item shops like there aren't stores where you can just go shop the Dungeon Master's Guide and, and buy magic items. Um, however, for higher level characters, um, I have established that such things do exist in the city of brass on the plane of fire. So the city of brass is a, is a specific place. So someone using the plane shift spell could say, I want to go to the city of brass. They're not going to appear in the city of brass. They'll appear nearby far enough away that it requires a journey to get there. And there's a chance for some adventure along the way, but I'd say they appear close enough that they can see the city of brass in the distance and they, they know which way to go. All right. So that's a plane shift spell. The, the other spell we talk about here is the gate spell. 
The gate spell opens a portal linked to a specific point on another plane of existence. The spell provides a shortcut to a planar destination, bypassing many of the guardians and trials that would normally fill such a journey. But this ninth level spell is out of reach for all but the most powerful characters, and it does nothing to negate any obstacles that wait at the destination. The gate spell is powerful but not infallible. A deity, demon lord, or other powerful entity can prevent such a portal from opening within its dominion. So that's a, you know, that's a cool thing to know. You know, these powerful entities that claim uh, a specific, specific plane or a specific layer or region of a plane as their own can prevent people from gating into their territory, which is, which is pretty sweet. I personally, as a DM, I would go one step further, uh, which is what I think is a a logical uh, conclusion of this. And also say that such beings would be aware of any attempt to gate into their, their domain. So let's say uh, I have a certain demon Lord on a certain layer of the, the abyss and the player characters want to go to that layer. They try to gate to it. The gate fails because the demon Lord doesn't want them there, but the demon Lord knows uh, that a gate was just attempted and that he rejected it. He probably knows where on the material plane the gate was attempted and maybe even who cast the spell. Um, so just in attempting to gate into this part of the abyss and failing, the player characters have now attracted the attention of this demon lord who knows who they are, where they are, and the fact that they're trying to get into his realm. So at worst, they may be getting a visit from him or some of his minions and at best, uh, when they finally do get to his realm, he'll be expecting them and probably prepared for them. All right. So that is uh, the two spells that, that we talk about in here. And from here, uh, chapter two goes into a discussion of the various planes, starting with the astral plane. So I think that, that we have covered enough for today. So again, um, I would love to hear from you uh, how much you would like to hear about the various planes. I can just go through what's here in the 5th edition DMG. Um, We can kind of skim through it. We can go through it in more detail. Or I can pull in information from uh, the 3rd edition Manual of the Planes as well as the 1st edition Manual of the Planes if I can get my hands on one. Um, so let me know if you have a preference one way or the other. Uh, as I said uh, before, right now I am personally leaning towards at the very least pulling in some information from the third edition manual of the plane since I have it uh, to give you some examples of how you can do more with the planes uh, mechanically and have more interesting things going on with them. Um used to be pretty involved uh, to the point where on certain planes, there were uh, certain schools of magic that those spells didn't work as well. Certain schools of magic that those spells worked even better. Um, there are all kinds of environmental effects, uh, different types of gravity, um, all kinds of interesting things. And it's really, really been neutered down uh, for what we have in the DMG. But, you know, in fairness, you know, this stuff was all from Manuals of the Planes, which is its own book all about the planes. This wasn't necessarily stuff that you could find in the DMG of, of previous editions. So I think as far as for the Dungeon Master's Guide, what we're given here 
it's fine because I mean, let's face it. If you're going to do more than just a short jaunt to, to another plane, you're probably going to want more information than what's in the DMG anyway, right? You're going to be doing additional research, whether it's going and looking at wikis online or uh, going and checking out previous uh, editions, manual of the planes and things like that, or checking out the Planescape campaign setting for second edition or, or whatever. So, so, you know, you're going to be wanting more than that anyway. I have to say something that, that I'm curious about is if, Wizards of the Coast did a manual of the planes or something similar for fifth edition. What would that look like? And would we see more of these mechanics coming back for that? Or would it just be flavor and setting information and there wouldn't be uh, more mechanical to it? You know, one of the things that really bothers me about what they've done with the planes, and I think this started with Planescape in second edition, is they've really watered them down. Like, for instance, you know, I cut my tooth on D&D in first and second edition, and it was just accepted that you don't go to the plane of fire unless you have immunity to fire. And even better, you have at least two sources <laughs> of immunity to fire. So if something dispels one of them or or takes your magic item from you or something like that, you're, you're not totally boned. You've got a backup. And that was just, that was part of adventuring on the plane of fire. You know, there was no concept of, oh, you can just walk around the plane of fire and you're okay. It's like, no, it's the plane of fire. The entire plane is on fire. If you're on the plane of fire, you're on fire. <laughs> so even if you're just resistant to fire, you're screwed. Unless you're immune to fire, you are screwed. Um, and, and there was a whole, you know, does this plane have breathable air and stuff like that? And, and I feel like, and I think this started with Planescape. I didn't really play Planescape, but they're like, oh, let's, uh, let's dumb the planes down so that low level characters can, can gallivant around the planes. And I mean, if you really want to have a low level adventure on the planes, I, I guess go for it. And you, you know, that totally works. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I personally prefer them to be more, more dangerous and more, uh, something to look forward to at, at high level play, because, you know, let's think about it. You know, fifth edition, I'd say at least tier three, which is uh, what? 11th level before you even think about going to the planes. Um, so tier three, 11th level and beyond, you know, if you started at first level, by that point, you've you've kind of probably had your fill of the prime material plane, right? You, you've you've gone from being a village hero to a regional or a national or even a world hero, you know, it's kind of been there, done that, you know, and, and it's harder and harder to find things that will truly challenge you in, in your home plane. So it's only natural to, to look to, uh, uh, more distant frontiers to explore. And that's what, at least in the old days, what, what the planes were in a place where even, you know, high level, powerful characters with, you know, bags of holding full of magic items will still be challenged in these very uh, inhospitable environments where the only way to get home is using magic or finding a portal or, or something like that. So I don't know. To me, that's that's the mystique of the planes. And that's what excites me about the planes. If you remove that, it's it's no different than going to another campaign setting. It's no different than from going from Forgotten Realms to Eberron or from Primordia to Kryn, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a little different. There's some differences, you know, but 
it's not fundamentally different where I feel like going to the plane of fire or going to the abyss or anywhere else, going to the astral plane, it should be fundamentally different. And, uh, uh, it should be something where, where the player characters and even the players don't, don't really know what to expect. Um, they don't know exactly what they'll encounter. And, you know, I, I think that they should have to do a lot of research, you know, from the moment your player characters are like, we're going to go to the plane of fire to the moment they actually go to the plane of fire. Uh, there should be a lot of research done as far as well. Um, what's the plane of fire like? What, what do we need to be able to survive there? What do we need to be able to get around? What do we need to be able to find the thing we need to find there? And then what do we need to be able to get home safely? And, you know, answering all of those questions could be a quest or an adventure in and of itself. It could be information that is hard to find. I mean, probably would be hard to find how many adventures survive to get to say 13th or 14th or 15th level, probably not many. And then how many of those, instead of just retiring and um, living off the fruits of their laurels for the rest of their lives, how many are like, Hey, let's go to these super dangerous places um, and adventure there. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Dylan in the chat says Planescape didn't dumb down the planes so much as try to explore them in more depth. If you went to an inner plane without protection, you were still boned. Um, again, I didn't really play Planescape. I, I read through the books, but it's been a while, but I feel like Planescape is when they added the ideas of the, uh, oh crap. What do you call them? Like, like for instance, the plane of fire where there was a, uh, like a borderland between the f- plane of fire and sigil or the outlands or wherever that wasn't super dangerous that you could travel in. Um, so that's what I mean by dumbing it down. The fact that you could even go to the plane of fire at all at, at first or second tier and, and be okay. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So may- maybe that was fourth edition where they added that. I'm not sure, but <laughs> Yeah, I I don't truck with that. I think if you're on the plane of fire, you're on fire. It's as simple as that. There's no part of the plane of fire that's like the vacation spot of the plane of fire, other than the city of brass. But even there, everything's on fire. So yeah, um, but yeah. So so let me know uh, how much you want to hear about about the other planes, and um, yeah, you know, I I can probably also as we go through this, I can talk a little bit more about. Uh, what I'm doing with the outer planes uh, in my world of Primordia, because I am um, in some ways I'm very much doing my own thing with them and going away from Canon. But in other ways um, they're going to be the same. Like I'm going to have the plane of fire. I'm going to have the abyss um, and and they'll be similar as far as what you would expect those places to be like. Um, But just the whole kind of conceptualization of what the planes are and Um, how they fit together is going to be very different. So yeah, Dylan says that that what I was talking about sounds like fourth. So that could be, um, that could be that uh, that was a fourth edition thing and not a Planescape thing. Um, Since I just read both, I kind of tend to get them mixed up. Um, It really takes me playing or running something for it to really uh, get solidified in my mind so that I I can remember it real well. Um, And uh, yeah, the, the main thing I don't like about Planescape is the the whole alignment thing. Planescape really doubles down 
on this concept of the planes being the personification of alignments. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I can't imagine a planescape campaign in which you said alignment is merely a way to describe a character's morality in two words. And it's no more than that. And, uh, it's just a reflection of human perception of human morality. It's not a fundamental building block of the universe, which, which, you know, the whole concept of the planes given here in the DMG is that each plane is itself a personification of an alignment. So this plane is lawful good made flesh. It is the personification of lawful good in a place. Um, so, so it really builds on this idea that lawful good is a thing that exists that is beyond people, beyond civilizations, beyond even the gods. Cause gods, you know, there are gods who are lawful good, that it is a fundamental building block of the universe of the multiverse, like the atom. <laughs> and my personal, uh, take on alignment is, is not that it's just human reality. It, it, there, there is no such thing as lawful good. Um, there is no such thing as chaotic evil. It's just um, a conception. And I even go a, a step further. And, and I mean, I haven't come firmly down on this, but, but the way I'm leaning right now is those alignments aren't even conceptions and setting. It's purely a metagame concept. There is no, no one in Primordia will ever say lawful good or chaotic evil. It's not you know, we're not going to have a discussion in character and primordia about whether this character is lawful good or chaotic good. Um, you know, those concepts don't don't exist. It's a metagame thing, just like characters don't discuss how many hit points they have or what their armor class is. Right. Those are metagame concepts. They don't translate into something in the world that, that characters would talk about or even think about or or believe to be a thing. So, um you know, just like in, in the real world, someone might label someone as, quote, evil. Um, but, you know, just like in this world, you know, I think most people would think that, well, I mean, that's an adjective we use to describe someone. It's not to say that evil is a fundamental part of the universe like, you know, like hydrogen is. <laughs> right. Like like in in the world of nature you know, is the wolf evil because he eats the rabbit? Uh, probably not. But from the rabbit's perspective, the wolf is totally evil, right? It's, it's, you know, it's not a, a real concrete thing. It's a thing of perspective. It's subjective. And, and I think just like in the real world, most people, when they really thought about it, would come to that conclusion. I think in Primordia, most people, if they thought about it, would really come to that conclusion which is not to say that people won't say that people are evil, just like in, in the real world, or they won't say that someone's really good, just like in the real world. But they're not going to say that person is has a neutral alignment or that person is chaotic neutral. Um, yeah. So, so you know, your mileage may vary. There, there are definitely, I think, settings out there, maybe even some of the canon ones, I'm not sure, where, well, probably all the canon ones, actually, since the planes are built on these concepts of alignment, where people can't say, oh, this person is lawful good or this deity is neutral evil. Um, so, you know, that's another decision you can make as a world building, you know, when it comes to alignment, is this, is this just a metagame thing that we use 
to describe our characters, just like we use armor class and hit points and, you know, my dagger does 1d4 damage, but your character in game will never say that, right? Is it is it like that? Or is it something that really exists in the world, right? Like the spell fireball exists in the world. A, a wizard can say, I learned the fireball spell today, right? Like that's a real thing in the world as opposed to the wizard saying, oh, I have five more hit points now because I've leveled, right? I mean, level usually isn't uh, a concrete thing in the world. I, I've definitely seen DMs who did it that way, where, where a character in the world might say, I'm a fifth circle wizard, which means they're a fifth level wizard. So it's definitely been done, can be done. But usually I think uh, even level is is an abstract kind of metagame thing. It's not something that characters talk about in the setting. So yeah, let me know what you think about uh, more episodes on the Outer Plains and uh, let me know uh, what some of your favorite planes are. I'd love to hear which of the planes people especially dig. And uh, if you've had adventures on the planes, let me know some of your favorites. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for episode 179 of Game Master's Journey. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker. You can also call the Game Master's Journey voicemail number and leave me a message. If your question or feedback is entertaining or enlightening or both, you might even hear your message on the show. You can reach our voicemail at 951-GMJ-LEX-1. That's 951-465-5391. If you have questions, feedback, or suggestions for future topics, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit our website, StarWalkerStudios.com, where you can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes of Game Master's Journey, as well as links to my Google Plus and Pinterest, and a link to my YouTube channel. You can also find a link to the Game Master's Journey community where you can share ideas with other listener GMs. Finally, you can learn about how you can support the show by becoming a patron, by making a one-time donation on the website, by using my Amazon referral link when you shop on Amazon, by getting yourself a Game Master's Journey t-shirt, or by purchasing my D&D adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth. You can find all this and more at StarWalkerStudios.com. I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I hope you have a chance to run your favorite RPG. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production. Your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.